you would like to buy your own copy of Black British Queer Plays and Practitioners, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Wajisala Adebayo is a playwright, performer, director, producer, workshop facilitator and lecturer. And Annette Goddard is Professor of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway, University of London in the UK. Together, they're the anthology editors of Black British Queer Plays and Practitioners. In this episode, we'll be discussing the process behind selecting plays for this collection, including their historical context and the role of theatre publishing in allowing people to access plays, particularly plays from marginalised groups. The anthology covers plays from several decades, so we'll be taking a look at how the theatre landscape has changed and progress that is still yet to be made. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Wayman Cam. And I'm your other host, Celia Monroe. And today we are speaking to Lynette Goddard and Modusola Adebayo, the editors of Black British Queer Plays and Practitioners, an anthology of Afroqueer theatre. Um, welcome to the show. We are so excited to be speaking with you. Super happy to be here. Thank you. I guess the first thing we want to know is just how did this get started? Um, why did you decide to put together this collection? I think it was your idea, Mod. It's been a long time in the making. That's what I would say. And I'm pretty sure that it was, it was you, Moj, that, that first came to me with this idea that we should do a, a book that captures together plays of Black British. I think at the time we were thinking 21st century Black British queer uh, practitioners. I'm pretty sure you came to me. I've not long finished my book, right, on Black lesbian theatre. And you were, I don't know, doing your PhD or something. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And I, I, I mean, I was also massively inspired by your book staging black feminisms and all of the history of black lesbian work in there and thinking you know what's the what's the next kind of stage yeah we've been talking about this for over over 10 years so it's a yeah it's a great moment yeah and I think we also because when we spoke more recently in the kind of most recent version of coming together to actually do the book we were talking about how we wanted to create a resource right that people can go back to that people can teach from that people will know that this this history of plays existed so it was about kind of making sure that people can access these plays especially that some of them are quite old as well and that they know of these playwrights because they're not playwrights that maybe you're always going to see on drama degrees for example so that was also a motivation yeah absolutely and then there was this series that I think it was Natasha Bonheim at the National Theatre put together. It was kind of a historical series with performances of extracts of various plays by Black British writers. And there was a there was a queer event, I think, or maybe even more than one, um, where little pieces of like Syndikes was read and different and different plays. And I remember sitting next to Topher Campbell, one of the voices of the book and, you know, there was somebody said, you know, but there isn't really a body of work out there. These are just extracts of these plays, but there isn't really a body of work. And Topher and I looked at each other and I put my hand up and said, there is a body of work. It is out there. And watch this space. We're going to we're going to publish a book. And that was before we got a book deal, Lynette and I. So it was also a kind of active defiance as well to say we're, we're not just in the archive to be dragged out every now and then and do an event, although the events were beautiful. These are works that have a a relevance and can be used here and now. Yeah. And could you tell us a little bit for people who don't know about the term Afroquia? <laughs> I mean, I, I had been thinking for a long time about how to 
you know, how to talk about blackness and queerness um, together. And so there's a, there's a whole kind of discipline now of study that is around black queer cultures and black queer identity. But again, the, the, the words are separate. And I, I, you know, I don't feel those things for me and for most of us are, are separate things are all, you know, very inclusive and one thing. So I was just being playful about how to put those words together. And I started off with, I think it was Afro queer, which some people use and then Afri queer. With again, with a hyphen, but one thing I thought was that queer as a kind of it's quite a nasal kind of sound. It's a very it's got a European kind of sound to it, and I was thinking how how could this word somehow reflect cultures of the African diaspora somehow have a bit more of that kind of energy or accent? And so I, I started playing around with queer, like I'm queer. <laughs> in a kind of with a kind of West African inflection, but so so really the, the word can also be pronounced and claimed in, in in any kind of way. And then at one point I thought oh, you still got that hyphen there. You're still dividing the two terms. So I dropped the hyphen and squished them together. So it's just a term to play with, really. But I think it also comes from a desire to counteract this um, stereotype that or myth that black people aren't aren't gay or lesbian and we don't have culture we don't have history or then we're not trans and all of that kind of thing and to resist that by by giving one word but there are many many words of course there are many many words across the african uh, continent and across the, the caribbean that exemplify queerness and black queerness and so afri-queer is just one of them but it could have been a zami book it could have been a moffy book it could have been a many you know so it's, it's just a kind of another playful word to add to the long vocabulary of words that we have and vocabulary is so important because when we know we had words before colonialism to describe ourselves when we know we have words that we can create for the future then we know that we had a past before we were colonized and we will have a future there's a statement in there by by throwing that word into fantastic uh, thank you just really quickly that um that kind of reminds me of earlier in the season we talked to a data scientist kevin guyan who was basically talking about how you could use data in terms of basically queer activism and he we did talk to him basically about you know the limitations of data and you know one of the things was obviously you know not every person will like identify with like the words that perhaps you know like a a very strict, like, for example, like data collection thing like census would collect. But obviously, you know, uh, especially if your first language is not English and if you're not from so-called like English speaking or Western country. But yes, like basically using words or definitions like from your own culture, I think is like, yeah, it's really important. It's something that I found really interesting when reading the introduction to this collection. So thank you. Yeah, it came um, quite a lot in the intro, didn't it? Um, in the round table discussion there's quite a lot around um, different words that are used to describe queer but afri-queer did you make that word up then Mod? is it your word yeah I mean you never know how and when I was a child I I thought I made up the word jeep <laughs> it's really you know like you're kind of like and I remember seeing a tv show going they use they're saying it's a jeep I made up that word so who knows maybe I heard it from someone I hadn't heard it before no I don't remember anyway mm. I'm in denial maybe 
But I think it's a brilliant point that you were making there, Ming, about, about data and about identity. And yeah, I think it's crucial to, to be able to self-identify. And, 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 it, and also the word isn't a way of us saying everybody's got to call themselves Afriqueer. It's, it's, an, it's an offer, but there are many, many words out there. I just want to talk about how did you choose each play? Because in the introduction, obviously you start off like part one is basically a, a quick run through, as it were, of like the essentially like the history of Black British theatre and more like going into it like Black British queer theatre. And you talk a little bit about how, you know, like why you chose these plays and so on. So if you could go into the reasoning behind the order of like the plays and like how you chose the plays that ended up in this collection, that would be great. Gosh. Well, there's a few things. One thing was that we wanted a mix of different writers. So we wanted men, women, trans, non-binary. So we wanted to have a, a collection that was inclusive of, of, of different people from different identity categories, if you might call it that. But we also wanted to show the kind of history of where Black, which is queer, right, where it starts in a way. So that's why we went all the way back to the 80s and kind of shifted from our original idea, which was going to be a 21st century focus. So where it starts and kind of where we are now. So the order, in a way, is a chronological, roughly speaking. So it starts with Jackie Mouday's play Basin, which is from, Maud, correct me if I'm wrong, 1985, 1986, around that time. And it ends with Maud's Stars, which, although written three or four years ago, will be produced for the first time in 2023. And so it's kind of, it starts in 85 and it ends with the first full production of Stars in 2023, and then everything in between. And then there are other plays like Boy With Beer. Well, you, you can maybe pick up on that, but the idea that this was one of the first plays in which two black men are kissing on stage in a theatre in the UK. So we wanted plays that kind of captured, I guess, important elements of our identity and our experience that we can kind of map shifts in black British queer identity by following through the, the, the order of these plays. For me also and I'll make this my, my last point for the moment, I'm really interested in kind of plays that do something in the world, so plays that kind of tap into uh, contemporary social issues and stuff like that. So for me, it was really important to have, for example, a play like Nine Lives in there, a play that's dealing with questions around refugees, asylum seekers, people who are seeking asylum in the UK because they're being persecuted in their, their home countries. And it's really important for me that people can tap into the the ways in which plays raise debates about these kinds of issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think Lynette's um, summarised it really well. And, and there are plays in there from every decade since the 80s. And, and also we've kind of highlighted in the introduction where there are there are fewer plays, for example, in, in the 90s, and a kind of flurry of plays around the mid mid noughties and why that might be. And as Lynette was saying about those kind of social issues, the plays that are not only speaking to queer experience, but help us map our experience on, on the islands that we live on in Britain, um, the different kind of key issues that have come up. So I kind of did, a, I remember doing a bit of a thought experiment that if you only knew about Britain through the lens of black queer plays, and um, what would you learn about the nation? Um, so, what, how do you see see the page from the margins? Is it, is it how do you how do you read read a country um, through some of its 
peoples who are considered perhaps on the edge of of a society, although I question that very much, you know, as Lynette was saying about kind of issues around migration in nine lives, um, marriage and equal marriage in the high table, of course, trans lives, and but also discrimination on the street and street violence in burgers, um, music and the influence of, of music on people's lives, embashment, sex and sexual practices and the legacies of slavery in, in mixed heritage relationships in syndikes. Love in Boy With Beer is really a love story uh, and it's a, a love story about between two black gay men, but it's, it's, it's about love really. And uh, similarly with Basin and the pressures also that people are, are, you know, kind of living under socially and that affect our ability to, to feel free and love each other. Um, and the legacies of colonialism all the way through um, all of those plays. Oh, and I forgot one of my, my own play stars. It mentions Brexit and space travel and elderly lives and intersex lives and um, all kinds of other topics. So yeah, it's, it's a very sort of rich, if I say so myself, very rich collection that touches on lots of different issues and themes. It's very diverse in terms of the writers. And also we wanted to, a collection that isn't necessarily written by people who identify as as LGBTIQA plus our Afriqueer, you know, so um, that wasn't so important to us whether that the actual author identifies as, as, as one of those identity categories, because also people's lives change. But it's the content of the plays, the content of the plays uh, represents black queer life in Britain, in particular. Yeah, and this kind of maybe goes a little bit back to the first question as well, because one of the things we talked about quite a lot when we were putting it together was also something that celebrates us as well. So these are plays, yes, they do tap into really important issues, homophobia, transphobia, and all the issues that we've already mentioned. They are also plays that together kind of celebrate our lives, celebrate the ways in which we survive, celebrate aspects of our culture. So there's a kind of celebration in the choice and that we could have picked other examples, but but these ones kind of felt like they gave us a good range. And just to say, I mean, we could have chosen so many other plays, as Lynette has indicated. That we, we we were sport for choice. There were there were lots out there, but yeah, that celebratory aspect, and also that the the plays are set in Britain and are partly about they're as British as they are black as they are queer you know they're kind of and so that was that was a particular kind of s- selection and also very positive representations of, of black queer peoples um, so we didn't want to just p- present plays where you know the one black character is excluded in the workplace or beaten up on the street or whatever it is um, so yeah we've both been audiences for these plays for all of these plays you know, we sometimes seen some of these plays together. So we're we're sort of aware of the ways in which those plays work on on their audiences as well and the ways in which those plays affected us. So that was also um, in our choice. I thought it was really interesting too, that you're talking about all the different identities that you really wanted to focus on in the collection and really want to get it across, but also like talk about these celebratory aspects. And when I was in school I did for my thesis I was also trying to put together like this creative nonfiction collection that was focusing on women and disability and I was trying to do the same thing of like when you get into all these conversations about disability you kind of toe this line where at least a lot of people are thinking too about kind of these 
medical aspects or like painful aspects or like trauma and like things along those lines. And you forget to really talk about like the celebratory like side of this culture and this community that you have and a lot of, and trying to kind of encompass all of that into the stories that people are telling too. So I remember like reading your collection and reading the like roundtable discussions and stuff too, how a lot of the playwrights were talking about just struggling to bring that into their stories too, or making sure to focus on that as well. And so, yeah, I definitely found that really interesting as I was reading along too. And I feel like that leads a bit into our next question about the historical context behind the collection or behind the plays. And there's obviously a lot of like history that comes into play behind like identity and kind of talking about culture. And so I was wondering if you could talk more about that since I know the different plays in the collection talk about either like stories from Brazil or like the diaspora. And this is specifically like Black British queer plays, but how does history come into play there? Yeah, well, I, I'm smiling at my historian friend and also, so I'll come in and, and, but feel free to bring in more, more Lynette. Uh, yeah, we start in the, in the eighties in the collection, you know, for those of us who remember it as, remember those times in Britain as well, what very um, fraught times. There were times of uprising uh, on the streets, times of um, struggle, um, times of great kind of challenge, challenging racism in very, very direct ways, homophobia as well. It was a, a time of very kind of uh, right-wing government um, where there were very explicit homophobic laws in place and also massively homophobic omissions like equality in terms of having children and and marriage um laws like section 28 that forbid for forbade the uh, expression of gay identity or celebration of gay identity and it was gay then um rather than trans particularly um trans people in terms of schools and discussion in schools hardly got a look in at all so it was really painful time in the 80s into and but also a time that was very very exciting because there was there were theater companies or black theater companies or queer theater companies or feminist theater companies people who were putting themselves on the line there was also a lot of resistance to the right-wing government and companies and movements that were funded through very left-wing um, councils like the Great London Council which was a very left-wing council at a time in a very right-wing government um, so that kind of friction gave space actually for 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 writers like Jacqueline Rude and Paul Boacci to, to come through um, and they're just two in those in you know who were making work out of many many people in the 80s and the early 90s and it's wonderful that in our collection we have the voice of Topher Campbell who as a, as a journalist and an artist and a theatre maker and a filmmaker and a television director as well kind of worked and an archivist so many things Topher and um, worked all the way through that period and could really uh, look back and reminisce about that those times and kind of reflect on those times in the roundtable discussion so I think that's important to say as well that it's not just a, a book with plays in it but but a, a discussion with people who represent many generations of black queer life and have seen many aspects of black queer life including Ricky Beadle Blair and Valerie Mason John so a, a kind of the 
people who remember the 80s, I'll put it that way, <laughs> including myself and Lynette. So yeah, a time of great kind of friction, uprising, challenge that gave work to some really cutting edge work and challenging work into a kind of late 90s, early noughties, um, kind of perhaps a kind of time of complacency around what it is to be to be queer in this world, a kind of, oh, we're, we're kind of okay now. We're, it's kind of, we've got gay pride. We can all have a fun time and enjoy music. And then Ricky Beetle Blair comes along and gives us a play like Bashment, um, which which looks at not just a kind of club culture, but some of the challenges of being within club culture, homophobic lyrics, that kind of thing, and how those things connect to, um, although we might have a certain degree of freedom uh, in Britain, uh, our lives are inextricably linked with with the Caribbean, with what's happening in Africa and Americas, and, and particularly that that play looks at the influence of dancehall, Jamaican dancehall music and lyrics and homophobic lyrics on black queer life in Britain as well. Um, I hope I'm not doing a disservice to Ricky uh, by, by saying that it's such a, a rich play. And yeah, then moving into the the later 2000s, the kind of, with Nine Lives, it's a play that, yeah, if you didn't know Britain, you would realise that it's a, it's a country that, you know, has had a very significant population of people coming to Britain from overseas, but that there's a colonial um, legacy, reasons for why people come to Britain and how badly a lot of people who are migrating to Britain, who have come from challenging homophobic situations, how badly people are treated, how isolated it can be, how much kind of a small cog in a big machine, how lonely it can be, how friendship can be found on very kind of intimate kind of levels. And with Travis's work, I'm, you know, thinking about history, I'm thinking we would look back you know, if one was to look back at a Britain's at the point at which Travis's brilliant play Burgers comes along, is saying it's not you know it's not enough to have so-called lesbian and gay liberation. Yes, a Black Lives Matter, and every Black Lives Matters, including trans lives, and this kind of tyranny, the violent tyranny of gender, must no longer be allowed to exist in in the in these times. We have to make life in a different kind of way. Yeah which could go on with the high table, a time when legislation might be challenged. We might have gay and lesbian marriage and a certain degree of rights in terms of trans lives, but we've still got a long way to, do, to go before our families and cultures are really accepting of our identities. So we would see that as, you know, that, yeah, we've had all this fantastic legislation, but let's, let's think about how we actually relate to each other. And with STARS, a time when a lot of elderly people have been through COVID and have been extremely lonely and isolated and a time when we think actually the most lonely and isolated people in the world, including child migrants, including intersex people whose identities are often kind of left off the end of LGBT uh, as if we don't matter, um, that it's a time when all queer identities must be embraced and all ages as well. So that's my kind of very rough kind of impressions of 80s, 90s, noughties. But I'll hand over to my historian friend. <laughs> I like the way you say I'm a historian. I'm a theatre historian particularly, actually. And thank you for mapping that in terms of the themes of the plays. In a way, you said what I would have said or could have said, which is really about the, the way that theatre history kind of changed through that through those periods. So in, as, as Moj just so well said, um, in the 80s, we had the establishment of 
black theatre companies, sort of from the late 70s, I suppose, and into the 80s. We had the establishment of black theatre companies, but many black theatre companies at that time weren't producing black queer work. There's a writer actually that's not in the book that we should give a, a, a big up to actually, which is Jackie Kay. And we thought long and hard about including one of Jackie Kay's plays in the book. But obviously we were limited on what we could include and we wanted to make space for people that were, were less known. But Jackie Kay, back in the 80s, was producing plays within the remit of women's theatre companies and black women's theatre companies, so theatre black women and also gay theatre companies, so companies like Gay Sweatshop, for example. So the 80s for me is kind of a period at which black theatre companies were established and were running, but they weren't really producing queer work. And so black queer practitioners were finding other spaces and other kinds of companies through which to get their work produced. And then by the time we moved into the 90s, in terms of theatre, I'm thinking particularly there was it's a kind of moment of some might say integration. So it was the, the year in which lots of the funding was taken away from those black theatre companies and from women's theatre companies and from gay theatre companies. And money was redirected, I suppose, to mainstream, more mainstream companies and with the expectation that they would integrate or be more inclusive of black work and of queer work and of women's work. The extent to which that happened, I'm not altogether sure, to be honest. By the 2000s, we're seeing that work and we're seeing it within the remit of some of those mainstream companies, but it feels like it's the kind of, it's the individual practitioner that is being promoted. So when I come to the history, I come to it in terms of theatre history. And I think when you map through the plays, when you see where these plays were put on and by whom, like the, the, the venues that have supported Black queer work, the Oval House in particular, really jumps out as supportive of that work during the 90s and into the early 2000s. There's a story to be told there about that, that history as well. Thank you. That's a really... <laughs> It's a really like fantastic like answer. And I was actually going to ask about the theatre landscape because it has changed like greatly. I mean, even in the last sort of, you know, five years, let alone 20, 25. But I feel, feel like you've covered most of that. Do you feel that the theatre landscape, like how much more do you feel like it needs to to change? Because, you know, there's particularly with people who are, heading up uh, or like artistic directors for example of theatres we've seen some progress being made there in the last couple of years I'm thinking of people like Lynette Linton at the Bush Theatre but you're right like there's I feel like there's been a little like a bit of shrinking which perhaps corresponds a little to the shrinking of funding with regards to the Arts Council of you know the range of smaller companies for like black theatre companies feminists etc so I was just wondering how much more do you think it, it still needs to change it's not like one simple narrative of like progress you know this isn't just about politics it's the theatre and politics obviously so I feel like in some ways as you've talked about like we've regressed a little but we perhaps have progressed in the last couple of years but I just wanted to know your thoughts about that and how that's perhaps affected the kinds of plays that you've selected for this collection. It's funny you should mention the bush because I was just thinking about the bush theatre and the way that the bush theatre has provided a space for black queer work recently so it did the revival of Jackie Kay's Kiriscuro a few years ago it produced Travis's Overflow really recently as well and I was thinking about whether the bush 
is occupying a, a bit of a space that the Oval House maybe occupied um, 20 years ago in the in the late 90s and into the, the early 2000s. But the Bush is one theatre and it's one small theatre in one local area. And I think that I commend the Bush for what the Bush Theatre has been doing, but I feel like some of our more funded theatres, let's call it that, need to be getting involved in producing this work. But also I think, I think it goes back to what I was saying a moment ago. So some individuals will do very well, but it's like that individual will be taking up and then they will get their work produced here and here and here and here and here. And then there are other people that are trying to get a space for their work and there's no space for them. And I think that that's one of the things that the theatres need to start looking at now because it's like someone does a piece of work and it's a good piece of work and it does well for the theatre. And so the theater, that theatre or another theatre will commission that person to do another piece of work and then they will commission that person to do another and another and another and another. And I think the theatres need to be thinking more now about how they can share the work. I know that's not probably not that helpful for the individual who's trying to build their career, right? But I think we need to be thinking more in terms of more people doing little bits rather than one person doing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, and other people getting nothing. I'm not, I'm not expressing it in the best possible terms, but I think we need to move beyond that kind of promoting of a few and uh, start to think about how many people can, can get the space to produce their work. What they did at the Bush was really good because they produced Chiaroscuro, which was Jackie Kay's play from, I can't remember the year, 1986, let's say, roughly. And then they produced Temi Wilkie's The High Table in, in, in response. So that was great because Temi Wilkie got the opportunity to get her first play produced Right. It's the first play that she wrote. She got the opportunity to get that produced at the Bush Theatre and that has led to other opportunities for her in terms of her writing career. So I think that kind of an initiative, it was called Passing the Baton, where they paired an older black play with a, with a contemporary or a current commission. I think that's quite a good initiative because it kind of keeps the, the history in sight. It keeps where we've been in sight, but it also creates space for a new voice to emerge. So I don't know if you've got anything to add there, Marge. Yeah, I, th I think I agree with everything you said. I think that's all said brilliantly. And I'm concerned about the the individualism and the very conservative structure that um, most theatre happens in now in Britain and the lack of collectives, companies who generate, as Lynette said, you know, Lots of different people support, lots of different people train people, give lots and lots of different opportunities for development, for developing a kind of sense of style and a sense of voice. It's what we, you know, if you trace the history through this book, you'd say, wow, it's become about the, the individual artistic director and the individual playwright who is selected and, and that will only, that will never lead to revolution. <laughs> that will only lead to, that would only kind of reinforce a kind of hierarchy of the playwright and the artistic director at the kind of top of the tree, really. And, you know, if, you, if one looks at other sectors, for example, in disability arts, that would never, that approach would never have led to a kind of radical, anything nearing a radical change in terms of representation of uh, disabled people's stories, performers, technicians, directors. It would never, you know, it's, that's come about through 
the great work of people working collaboratively. There's obviously some individual voices, but even if, you know, even if a performer or playwright has never worked for Grey Eye Theatre Company, the fact that Grey Eye has been going for that long and, and has such a powerful voice and is, is so recognized as a very important artistic hub even though there are many companies like definitely theatre and many different groups and Kanduko dance and lots of different groups that have happened along the years. There's a, there's a foundation there. There's a power there. Once those companies start getting cut away and it's all about individual playwrights, it ceases to become a movement and it becomes more about kind of a very competitive, uh, individualistic, a progress for a few, which is a capitalist uh, model, you know, and then that is often defined by the artistic director's particular commitment and interest. So a venue like Oval House and Brixton House, you know, where, where artistic leadership has changed, you know, then then who gets in the door change, change and that shouldn't be the case. You know, there was a time when Asian work both East Asian work and South Asian work was thriving much more than it is now. There are many, many more shows because the theatre companies and the collectives were much more supported and, and they were much bigger and much more present. There are fewer now. And so then you've got individual playwrights trying to knock on the door of just a few venues. And unless that venue has a particular commitment to that particular community, in the way that Lynette Linton has got great solidarity with queer people, it doesn't matter about her own identity. She's got, she's got solidarity, she's got commitment. But what happens when that person leaves, somebody else comes in who's not interested anymore. And that, shouldn't, that won't lead to a seismic change. Companies, collectives, um, groups lead to, lead to radical change, not individual playwrights. And so I think that's also why it was really important to us in, in the book, not just to promote the book, but I think it's just reflecting that, that, that we've got voices in there who are not necessarily... I mean, Tondurai Monieva, for example, is a fantastic playwright and performer and director and teacher. The, um, one of one of Tondurai's plays is is not in this particular book. Um, it's, you know, their work is in, is in other books as well. But it was just as important that Tondurai's voice is represented as an artist, uh, as well as Topher Campbell and other people whose, whose work isn't published in this book, but just to reflect how those people have been working collaboratively in companies like, like, uh, Tondurai's company, Two Gents, and, 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 you know, producing, producing work in collectives as he's done and, and Topher did for, for, has done as well for many years. So, so that's also really, really important. That's where this work comes from. And there won't be much of a future, I think, in, in just the individual playwright voice. We need to remember how we got here and not chuck that out how we got there is is in the collective space 